Exodus 35, verses 10 through 19 in the Christian Standard Bible. Let all the skilled artisans among you come and make everything that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tents and covering, its clasp and supports, its crossbars, its pillars and bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the curtain for the screen, the table with its poles, all its utensils, and the bed of the presence, the lampstand for light with its utensils and lamps, as well as the oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, the entryway for the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with the bronze gates, its poles and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, the hangings in the courtyard, its posts and bases, and the screen for the gate of the courtyard, the tent pegs of the tabernacle and the tent pegs for the courtyard, along with their ropes, and specially woven garments for the ministering in the sanctuary, the holy garments for the priest Aaron and the garments for his sons to serve as priest. Here in this passage, Moses is having the children of Israel prepare the tabernacle for the way that God commanded. Um, we see everyone working together for crafts, you know, arts and crafts stuff, tailoring robes, decorating the worship area. Um, even though we're no longer under the law of Moses as Christians, we believe that aesthetics can play an important part of worship still. Dr. Nathan Gilmore, why do you believe God had the people of Israel put so much into the decor of their worship area? And what can the church learn from that today? Well, there's really three things that are worth noting here, and one of them is what this holds in common with just about every worship tradition of the ancient world, and the other two are what make uh, Israel weird, uh, and what they hold in common with the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Hittites, and just about every other ancient people we can think of, is that they do employ their artists, you know, for the places where people go to meet God. Uh, so, I mean, every urban center that you've got, you've got some kind of temple, uh, you've got the best artists making images of the gods so that worship can go on. Uh, you've got, you know, the best building materials, the most gold that you can put together. All of these things are true in all of those places. Now, the two things that are weird here, one of them is that this is a mobile worship center. It's not a shrine that stays in one place, but it's one that follows the people. And of course, that makes sense because here in Exodus 35, uh, we are no more than 20 chapters out from crossing the Red Sea. We are out in the wilderness where these much more established uh, tribes are waging war against Israel. And wherever God is going to meet the people, it's got to be where the people are. So it moves around. It's not a temple made out of stone, but it's a tent made out of hides. The other thing that is notable here is who the chief priest is. So, you know, I mean, when we think about the uh, priest character in a modern novel, it's usually someone who is relatively harmless. It might be someone who's sort of a moral character, a moral center. It could be someone who's a hypocrite. It could be sort of a comic bumbling character like you get in a lot of Jane Austen novels, but largely harmless characters. In the ancient world, uh, you know, I mean, if I can, you know, slide laterally uh, over to Homer, uh, someone like Tiresias or someone like Calchas the prophet or someone like, um, you know, Croesus, the high priest of Apollo, these are dangerous men. Uh, they have a relationship with the divine that makes them just extraordinarily powerful. And what makes Israel interesting here uh, is that, first of all, the one who is talking to the gods, the prophet, uh, is a failed insurgent. The first thing that we actually see Moses do as an adult is to murder an Egyptian, look this way and that, and hide the body. The other weird thing is uh, just three chapters before this passage that uh, we just read, um, 
Aaron is on God's kill list. Uh, you know, God says to Moses, uh, these people, Israel, and Aaron is among them, uh, have just created this golden calf to worship and said that this golden calf led them out of Egypt, not me. I'm going to kill them all off. And Moses, I'm going to start over with just you. And Moses goes to God. And, uh, you know, just in case we think that we believe in the power of prayer, Moses actually talks God out of killing all of Israel. Um, and, you know, three chapters later, uh, God here institutes Aaron and all the sons of Aaron as the ones who are going to be part of this temple. So all of the conversations we're going to have about aesthetics today, um, I want to be sure that we remember these core contradictions inside of which the aesthetic conversation emerges, right? You know, for the people of God, starting with Moses, you know, going up to the rabbis and the Christians and everyone who is faithful to God, uh, is that we are in some ways, just like all of the other peoples, very convinced that connecting our artwork and our life with God is an imperative. And I think that's right. And also, we are part of a story that in a lot of important ways is nothing like their stories, where you don't have a respectable family at the center. You have someone who has betrayed God. You don't have someone as your chief prophet uh, who is, you know, the descendant of other people who have spoken to the gods, but you have a murderer. And so, I mean, you know, um, like I said, we've got a lot of conversations to have today, but I just want to set up that frame around them before we dig in. Yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. We are back with our ecumenical aesthetic series. Uh, excited to have Dr. Nathan Gilmore with us. He was a former religion professor. Currently, I believe you teach English at a high school somewhere. I don't know. Yes, indeed. North Gwinnett High School. <laughs> Go Bulldogs. Yeah. Yeah, that. Um, but not the college Bulldogs. Not this year. Uh, the iconography is almost identical, as is the color scheme. Yeah, I, I'm suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> my elementary school was the Bulldogs, but we were green. There you oh. go. But yeah, we're excited to have Dr. Nathan on. This originally was going to be the first episode in our ecumenical aesthetic series. Uh, but then then we realized uh, Pang and Taylor had some stuff that we had in common with them being Pentecostals. And we were like, you know what? We'll just start the series a week early. So we did that first. And now we're circling around to what was going to be the beginning to ask the question about uh, why we should care about this stuff at all. Isn't it like idol worship to look at art and worship? Like, you know, what's that? You know, there's a lot of iconoclastic themes throughout religion in general, especially within Christianity, especially within Protestant Christianity. So, um, and I know a lot of our listeners are Protestant. So this will be a interesting one to discuss with a former religion professor. Really excited to get into that. But before we do, we have to introduce the reason everyone came. Uh, the whole reason people care about this podcast. You know, we call it the whole church podcast, but that's really just code for the greatest man ever podcast. This is really the TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell show. TJ, welcome to your show. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you like what we do here uh, and you just you need more content, you just want to listen to more people talk, uh, go ahead and check out the Honest Out Ministries uh, podcast network. Uh, other shows like ours, shows that we're friends with, go ahead and support them too. 
And uh, you can chat with us on our Discord server in our notes if you're kind of confused on how to get into that or just have other questions you would like us to ask or more specifically questions you would like us to ask Nathan and then we can tell you what Nathan said. Yeah, that's really how it works. We're just, you know, the middle people. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's what we like to do here. Another thing we like to do, um, you know, we're Unity Podcast and I, I actually do have a favorite form of Unity. It's a spiritual practice of mine known as silliness. We're going to ask a silly question and I'll discuss it for a little bit. And uh, TJ and I will answer first today's question. Nathan, what scripture would make for the ugliest painting? This is like the opposite of last time. Last time we asked like the best Van Gogh painting. Now we're like, what's the uh, no the worst Van Gogh? This one's ugly. Why do I keep going ugly? Why don't I ask what the best painting? <laughs> what's wrong with me? Um, ugliest painting for a scripture. Um, you know what? I'm going to be real controversial here. I'm going to upset some people. Uh, Jesus wept. I just imagine he was a real ugly crier, so I think that'd probably be a bad painting. <laughs> yeah, and weeping is like the ugliest crying. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I just can't wait for the emails of how dare you say Jesus was an ugly crier. <laughs> Listen, he was human. Sort of. The the puffy-eyed buffy cr- buddy Christ. <laughs> I, it's, Someone this please is... make that art. <laughs> This is a much harder question. (laughs) I don't... It is tough. The problem is, the word ugly is subjective. What is is an ugly painting? If the painting was meant to be ugly, then it's not ugly. It's exactly what it was supposed to be. You know what? Also, when, um... Was it Paul says, my righteousness was as filthy rags? That's gotta be a bad... That's gotta be a bad one. Especially with filthy rags, man. I'm gonna go with the same thing I said last time, which I have to look up the verse again because I can't, I can't remember this or I'll remember it too. Well. Okay, it's Psalm 38, five through eight. Uh, my loins are filled with a loathsome disease. There is no sound in this in my flesh. <laughs> He's gonna keep reminding us all of that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Nathan. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, 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 I'm glad TJ went that direction because uh, my first thought was, okay, they're going to expect me to go to the uh, the rather graphic uh, adultery images from Ezekiel, but I, I'm not going to go there. I, I actually went uh, in a direction that you know kind of got deep, even though I was supposed to be silly. So I apologize for this. But uh, <laughs> what occurs to me is that the moment when uh, David receives the news in Second Samuel 12 that Bathsheba's infant has died. Uh, is possibly the most psychologically horrifying moment for me uh, in a horrifying book of the Bible, which is to say Second Samuel. And that is when, you know, David says, oh, the baby's dead, then get me something to eat, wash my clothes, and tell Bathsheba I'll see her in the bedroom in 30 minutes. Yikes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. And I'm just thinking, I mean, you know, if a really skilled portrait painter painted the face of someone in that mental state, it would be at the... At, and if they did it well, and I mean, I'm, I'm trying to take TJ's objection seriously here, it would be certainly a grotesque portrait, right? Mm. Now, if you did it intentionally, then I mean, you know, you wouldn't call it ugly in the sense of you were trying real hard to do something pretty and failed, but it yeah. would be something that is horrifying visually, I think. So, I mean, right. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking sort of the uh, Davidic uh, portrait of Dorian Gray. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See, uh, the issue, I'll... you... you if you're trying to create something ugly and you succeed, you have created beauty in its completion. 
you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, 20th century, you know, um, philosophers, you know, would distinguish between the ugly, which is a failed attempt to be pretty, and then the grotesque, which is an intentional or an in- intentionally so, shocking work of art. Two other acceptable answers would have been um, the painting of the the women when Solomon tells them to just split the baby in two. That would have been funny. I don't think it would have been a great painting. Um, also, you could have just said literally any verse that Joshua paints would have been a solid answer. Yeah. Uh, see, we're assuming good painting. Yeah. That see, that was on you. <laughs> So one of the main reasons we're doing this series is because of our belief that beauty can bring people closer to God and to one another, which is why you can't have really ugly paint. But uh, (laughs) we have a few questions we're asking everyone in the series to go along with that belief. Uh, So we're going to go through those real quick and then we get into the more unique stuff in a minute. Uh, So Nathan Gilmore, could you tell us of a time where you've seen God in the beauty of creation? Outside, specifically in nature. Yeah, that, this one is a hard for it's hard one for me because I have always been fascinated with science. So when I'm in a new place outside, I'm thinking in terms of its geology and its ecology and meteorology and you know all of these ways that I can map the things that I have learned onto the things that I can see. So what occurred to me because I'd never really thought about this is that you know I mean I really encounter. Uh, creation as something given rather than something to be examined when I'm already pretty familiar with the place. Uh, So, I mean, you know, I can think of moments where, you know, a place where I've been 20 times before, it strikes me, you know, I mean, it, it, it dawns on me that this is a place that is given by God. And therefore, I mean, it is kind of a spiritual experience. So, I mean, one of those places, I mean, you know, is a, a state park not far from where I live, you know, Fort Yargo. And, you know, I mean, when I've been at the lake there out, you know, reading or working or, you know, doing whatever, there have been moments, certainly, when I've had that spiritual connection with it. Hmm. Nice. So the next one, uh, we're asking everybody, would you share a moment with us, if you have one, that you have felt a, felt a special connection to a painting, sculpture, or something of that nature? It doesn't really need to be a religious painting, but just anything like that. Yeah, back in 2003, I'm pretty sure it was. And listeners, if it was late 2002, feel free to email uh, Josh and TJ and say, Gilmore can't (laughs) even get his date straight. Um, But it was actually the absence of an artwork that struck me in a spiritual way because uh, Colin Powell went to the United Nations to make the case for the invasion of Iraq. And in the hall where he made this case was a silkscreen print of Picasso's Guernica. And he insisted that that painting be taken down before he made the case for a massive aerial invasion of, you know, a highly populated area. And so, I mean, when that happened, I kind of resolved for myself that, you know, when I became a professor, uh, which, you know, as it happened, was about uh, six years later, I would get myself a poster print of Guernica and hang it in my office. And I did. And it was there for 14 years. And I mean, I told that story anytime a uh, student or a colleague commented on it, because it's one of those artworks that uh, really has a connection with and really shed some truth on a really, you know, regrettable moment in human history. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's a good one. Um, so another thing, there's been shown in several studies that there is a healing aspect to just kind of perceiving beauty. Do you believe there's a reason why God might have wired us this way? 
Sure, sure. I mean, you know, and it's interesting. I come at this, you know, not mainly through the Bible, but actually mainly through Plato. Uh, you know, I mean, his dialogue uh, symposium, um, I must have taught it 20 times and I've read it, you know, several times on my own besides that. And one of the things that, you know, Socrates explores in that dialogue is this strong connection between the good and the true and the beautiful, you know, the three traditional transcendentals. And one of the things that, you know, beauty does, um, again, you know, according to Socrates' account of it there in the Platonic dialogue, Mm -hmm. uh, is that it gives us a rung on a ladder to climb up to towards the true and the good. So, I mean, the beautiful, because it approaches us through our senses, uh, you know, is something that is changeable. Uh, It ages, it fades, sometimes it disintegrates. But if we are inclined in that direction, then we have the ability to reach beyond ourselves and reach for what is true and reach for what is good. And, you know, for Socrates, I mean, that is truly why we have poetry, why we have sculpture, why we have architecture, so that it can guide our souls towards the eternal. Uh, so, I mean, you know, if, if we take that and, you know, we go over to the uh, letters of St. Paul, right? Um, and I'm pretty sure this passage is in Philippians, if it's not listeners, or for that matter, Josh and TJ, by all means, correct me. Um, but you know, when St. Paul says, you know, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is true, think on such things, right? Um, I I get in trouble sometimes around uh, New Testament studies people for saying that (laughs) Paul actually knew the text of Plato, but that passage makes me think that he knew symposium. That makes me think he knew symposium. So, you know. I'm trying to think what uh, New Testament studies folks you have on your podcast with some regularity, but uh, they can they can contradict me next time they're on. <laughs> so yeah, in two weeks, my New Testament professor will be on. Awesome, so we'll awesome. See. But yeah, I th- there's so many places where Paul basically quotes Plato that it's like, well, it, yeah, it's I mean, hard it, to it, say it, he didn't. The, the The big one is in Corinthians where he basically forbids the faithful to take people to court to sue them, and I mean well, yeah. that I have found. I mean, the most influential text that does that is Plato's Republic, and I can't mm-hmm. find very many texts other than Plato and Paul that do that. So anyway, that's another conversation for another day. Yeah. A lot and of like the moderation said, stuff, you know. Yeah, your, your, uh, your, your New Testament professor can give all the reasons why I'm wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, at, at some point, I think we're just going to have to accept that uh, God wired us that way so that we think more things are beautiful, so we stay healthy. And that was the intention. That's how we're supposed to stay healthy in God's love. But, ah, you know, maybe not the beauty in each other. Today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I am always a little bit nervous when people psychologize certain theological realities, and, and beauty is one of them. So I, I realize some people are a lot more comfortable with that than I am, and that just means that I'm more jittery than most. He's just nervous you're going to call him beautiful. So before we get to the more unique aspect of this episode, we have another segment we're doing in each one for the Ecumenical Aesthetic Series. We call it the Artist's Corner. Uh, we're going to go through a few questions here. We're going to do them in random order. We probably won't get to all of them because we're only going to do this for seven minutes. No more than seven minutes. Uh, so we might get like one or two of these. Uh, but are you ready? I'm ready. So do you prefer hymns or modern worship music? Oh, I prefer hymns, and here's why, because they are in proximity to and therefore have this strong influence from Spencer and Shakespeare and Dunn and Herbert and Milton, 
Whereas, I mean, modern music, modern worship music uh, is in proximity to and therefore bears the influence of the Beatles and Elvis. And I love me an Elvis record. I really do. <laughs> uh, but he just doesn't stack up to George Herbert. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's so uh, does your church have stained glass? And if so, what's on it? My church does not have stained glass. However, I have worshipped in uh, Milligan College, which is my alma mater's uh, Seeger Chapel. Uh, which has a series of 12 stained glass windows, each one with symbolic representations of an apostle on the ground floor. And then on the balcony floor, there's a matching set of 12 um, stained glass windows, each one with a uh, symbolic visual representation of one of the tribes of Israel. And I mean, I love those stained glass windows. Uh, Every time we go back, I make a point of going to see your chapel just so I can look at them. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, does your church have a flag? And if so, what do you know about it? Uh, my church does not have its own uh, congregational flag. Uh, now, I will say that, you know, my church does work in the iconography of the chalice, the red chalice with the cross emblem, which is the symbol of the Christian church's disciple of Christ. And, you know, that has come to mean a great deal to me because, um, you know, especially in the second half of the 20th century and the early years of the 21st, it has come to symbolize, you know, sort of our central worship act, which is the open communion table, uh, the table of Christ to which Christ invites all. So, I mean, we, we don't have a flag per se, but we have a, a very prominent visual symbol that means a great deal to me. Okay. So how do you use music or other art in your worship time? Yeah, this was an interesting one. Cause I, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, my private devotion, I mean, it tends to be fairly silent. Uh, but I mean, you know, whenever I gather with my local congregation, we sing hymns. Uh, so I mean, you know, in that respect, both in the poetry of the hymns and in the piano playing of Jane Whitehead, who is among the most skilled piano players I've ever met. Uh, you know, I mean, there's definitely an artistic element to what we do when we gather as a congregation, even in our tiny little you know town of bogart georgia outside of athens right uh if your favorite bible passage were a painting what would it look like (laughs) so uh because i am a a an imp uh you know my favorite bible passage is uh proverbs 26 verses 4 and 5 listeners go look it up it'll be better if you look it up on your own uh and so you know i had to think okay how would you represent that visually and the best way i can think of is uh, a confused looking person in the center of the canvas with identical people, probably bearded men shouting at him from both directions. Uh, and you know, each of them pointing in a different direction. Okay. Yeah, I can see it. So what is the most unique piece of art that you have ever seen or heard? This is going to be a weird answer, but, uh, when I revisited Washington DC as an adult, I was about 40 years old. And I hadn't been there since I was probably an eighth grader. And during our tour of the Capitol uh, in the cupola, which is which is to say the inside of the big dome, uh, there is this gigantic painting of George Washington being assumed among the Roman gods. So it is Jupiter and uh, Neptune and Mars and Washington. And I thought, okay, you know, first of all, (laughs) <laughs> if you told somebody who didn't know that painting was there, that it was there, they might not believe you. They might think you're yanking their chain. Uh, but it, it was sort of the crown jewel 
in a realization that I was picking up, you know, revisiting Washington as an adult uh, of just how much of a Roman Empire fetish that city has. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty sick painting, though. Uh, so I, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it's gloriously done. I mean, it's it's really good painting <laughs> and it's also so weird. <laughs> oh, yeah. Super weird. <laughs> but it's pretty sick. So does your church have any statues that we could discuss? We do not have any statues. We are we are uh, pretty darn Protestant in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. Most of us don't, which mm-hmm. could be a good thing uh, or not. Who knows? Listen to the series. <laughs> uh, so what kind of wall decor is around your church and what is its significance? Well, I mean, around the sanctuary, there's not a whole lot. I mean, it's a it's a very typical looking, you know, small town Protestant sanctuary. You know, the the windows are just, you know, plain old clear glass. Uh, the paint is white. Uh, now, I will say that above our baptistry, you know, I mean, baptistry and Eucharist are, are just huge in the disciples of Christ. Or baptism and Eucharist, pardon me, are huge in the disciples of Christ. But above the baptistry is a uh, painting done by a local artist. Uh, of Jesus preaching at the seaside. So it's interesting. I mean, the way the painting looks, uh, the water of the baptistry looks like it is an inlet of the sea at which Jesus is preaching. So, I mean, in that respect, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty cool little, uh, you know, artistic touch on a sanctuary that otherwise is a, you know, kind of a, a typical, you know, late eight, late 19th century, pardon me, uh, Protestant sanctuary. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but that is all of the questions. Well, see, when you sent them to me, I, I knew I'd only have seven minutes, so I wrote very short answers. <laughs> yeah, you did a great job. Well, thank you. Thank that was you. About six six minutes. I'm impressed. Eight questions in six minutes. There you go. So, Doctor Gilmore, the main reason we mentioned earlier, the main reason we asked you to join this series was to kind of discuss the history of iconoclasm, especially within the church. Before we do that, could you explain what the term iconoclasm means and where it comes from? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, um, the, it's a compound word, as so many words in Greek are. You know, the, the true genius uh, of Greek is really its pre- prefixes and suffixes, but it does have the occasional sweet compound word, and this is one of them. Um, by the way, the, the, language, the, the languages that do compound words better than anyone are uh, medieval English German. and modern German. Yep. Um, but, uh, iconoclasm, I mean, in a very straightforward sense means the destruction of images, right? So icon is any kind of representation, uh, clasm, you know, is the, is the root word of, you know, our modern word clash. Uh, so, I mean, it is the destruction, destruction, pardon me, of images. Yeah. I think cataclysm is probably the, the most common mm-hmm. where people will recognize. Uh, sure. So what's the biblical basis for the idea of iconoclasm? The big one and the one that gets cited most often uh, when Christians, you know, write their treatises against images uh, is the commandment, you know, from Moses in Exodus 20. Uh, Since we started the podcast with Moses, it's good that we're going back to him. Um, It is part of the first commandment. If you're reading a Protestant list of Ten Commandments, it's a separate. No, strike that reverse it. It's the second commandment. (laughs) If you are uh, reading a Protestant list of 10 commandments, it's part of the first commandment. If you're reading a Catholic 10 commandments list and it is, uh, Mm -hmm. you shall not make any graven images. Okay. So, I mean, you know, grave, I mean, the same root word is engrave or, you know, 
Um, it's basically anything that is crafted. Uh, and, you know, the prohibition seems to be pretty specific about making images of God. Uh, so, I mean, you know, for that reason, uh, even those traditions within Christianity that do allow images and encourage images in worship will say that, you know, when we're talking about God, uh, the triune God, that making icons of the Son is permissible in a way that making icons of the Spirit and the Father is not permissible. So, uh, you know, I mean, other places where, you know, the images come in are, of course, uh, all of the places where, you know, the prophets and St. Paul and other parts of the Bible, you know, say that, you know, we do not worship a God made with hands. Uh, We've got, you know, Ezekiel 41 and Isaiah 48, uh, you know, both of which are sort of satirical send ups of, you know, images of gods in the worship of the nations around Israel. So, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty prominent strain uh, running all the way through, you know, the biblical witness that, you know, idols are at minimum, if you're reading Paul, simply representations of nothing. And maximally, uh, you know, if you're reading a book like first Samuel, um, the actual site where, you know, the rival gods of the neighboring nations are present in ways that they're not present elsewhere. So, you know, one of the things, and I, and I feel like I've talked about this when I've been on whole church before I, I tend when I read the Bible across the books, I tend to emphasize the plurality Mm -hmm. there. I know some readers, you know, prefer to harmonize. Uh, I prefer to look at each one in its particulars. And I mean, one of the differences that emerges is that, you know, different parts of the Bible come to different conclusions when it comes to what exactly the other gods are, what all of them agree about is that there is only one God to be worshiped. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, we mentioned, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser actually been on the show before and, um, mm-hmm. he passed earlier this year, but yeah, he's got some great work on some of that stuff. Cool. Um, one of the things that I find interesting for, that you were talking about, mm-hmm. Even some of the books that talk about, you know, no idols, we're going to destroy this, and these are just, you know, made up things, whatever. Sure. They still depict God has his temple with these statues of angels around the ark, and the ark kind of represents God. Right, right. Or statues of seraphim, let's be precise. Yeah, yeah. How (laughs) How does that fit into the narrative of the people who are like very anti imagery? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the brief answer to that is that, you know, worship traditions always exist in some kind of relationship with their neighbors. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we talk about the history of iconoclasm in the Christian tradition specifically. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know, the strong suspicion of images um, really emerges from the fact that all the nations around had images of gods. All right. So, you know, I mean, the fact that when Solomon uh, sets up those giant golden seraphim in the temple and three chapters later he is setting up images of the gods of neighboring nations in the same temple because he's married Mm -hmm. 700 women most of them from neighboring kingdoms uh you know there's definitely a strain in rabbinic thought that says i mean this is why you don't have these images because i mean they're a gateway drug to actual statues of gods right now on the Mm -hmm. other hand uh you know if we talk about the reaction going the other way uh, you know, one of the strong lines of argument, and we'll get to this in more detail later, that emerges in favor of using images is that, you know, a strong iconoclastic streak 
makes you just a little bit too close to Islam for comfort. So, you know, we probably should still approve of images. Otherwise, you'll become Muslim. Right. So, I mean, you know, what I'm driving at, again, is that is not that, you know, either of those arguments is inherently valid or inherently invalid. But just to note as a historical matter uh, that, you know, these sorts of things tend to emerge in relationship with neighbors. Right. And by the way, I mean, yeah. you know, and, and, well, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that later. I'm going to I'm going to give away all my stuff too early. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so what role has iconoclasm played in the church at large? All right. So here's where uh, someone who has read around in church history but hasn't ever taught church history is going to try to do a, <laughs> a brief church history lecture. But um, one of the big uh, distinctions that's important when we think about Christianity is, and images uh, is a distinction that the iconoclasts say is no distinction at all. All right. So they say that, I mean, if you pay any kind of honor to an image during worship, you are violating the commandment against worshiping graven images, and that's the end of the conversation. Okay? Those who are in favor of images in worship say that there is a distinction between, uh, and I'm going to use a couple Latin terms here, uh, dulia and latria. Okay? Um, so dulia uh, is a respect and an honor Um but it is a respect and an honor that one pays to one's created superiors. Okay. So in, you know, and you're going to wonder why I'm going to this text, but I will get around to it. I promise. So in, uh, you know, Sir Thomas Mallory's book, uh, Mort d'Arthur, the great collection of Arthur stories, right? A lot of times when Lancelot or Gowan or um, trying to think um, Galahad or one of the other great knights does something really heroic, really valorous, really impressive. Um, Mallory will say that the other knights worshipped him. Okay. Now, does that mean that they have become pagans and now they believe that, you know, he is, that Lancelot is, you know, semi-divine the way that Achilles or Aeneas is semi-divine? Well, no, it just means that, you know, in that, you know, English tradition of compound words, uh, that, Lancelot has just done something that calls forth a proper response of giving shape, Shepon, to the worth, Weirothon, of Lancelot. So Weirothon Shepon becomes abbreviated, because the Brits love to abbreviate words, into worship. Mm. Okay? Don't we all? So that's a, well, the the English have a particular (laughs) knack for it. Uh, But on the other hand, there is Latria, and this this is the, you know, the second and third syllables of idolatry. Okay, so Latria is an honor that you pay only to the true God. Okay, and so, you know, the uh, distinction that, you know, those who are in favor of images made was between Dulia, which you can pay to those who are superior. Right. So, I mean, to the Holy Virgin, to the saints, uh, to even those people, you know, in your life here among the living who are real spiritual exemplars. Okay. And then Latria, which is something that was reserved for God alone. Okay. So this emerges a few times uh, earlier and then it emerges later. So in the eighth century and the ninth century, you have moments uh, mostly in the Greek speaking Eastern Christian lands where, you know, in encounters with Muslims, because, you know, of course, Muhammad is around in the seventh century AD. We're talking about the eighth Mm -hmm. and the ninth centuries here. You know, Muslims are, you know, writing and speaking polemics against the Christians, saying that they are no better than 
the polytheists and the worshipers of unclean spirits because in their worship services they have these images of saints and these images of this and images of that. And so there are certain Christians who, you know, in response to that say we need to purge Christian worship of those images because we don't want to give our Muslim neighbors an excuse to call us idolaters, right? And so mm-hmm. once in the uh, 8th century and once in the 9th century, you have gigantic movements uh, in the Greek-speaking Eastern lands uh, where you know very prominent teachers and vast followings behind them start to remove all images and often destroy them. They are called icon- iconoclasts after all in Christian worship spaces. In both of those cases, this is what's interesting, the Western European churches uh, under the leadership of Rome, uh, you know, insist that images have a proper place in Christian worship. And just as importantly, in both of those cases, because the great schism of 1066, is it 10? No, that's that's the Battle of Hastings. Of 1043 hasn't happened yet. Uh, you know, you have these ecumenical councils. So you have bishops from Rome as well as from the great mm-hmm. Eastern cities of Christianity get together and both at the Second Council of Nicaea in the 8th century and at the Council of Constantinople in the 9th century, make official declarations from the overseers of the church, the bishops, that uh, images do have a valid and important place in Christian worship. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the great schism happens, and, you know, one of the few things that the Eastern Greek-speaking Christians and the Western Latin-speaking Christians still agree on is that images are still cool until you get to the Protestant Reformation. Now, here's where it gets, I mean, for my money, very interesting. You, you know, listeners, listeners should take note that uh, this is the historical period where my own doctoral dissertation takes its roots. So, of course, I'm going to find this period fascinating. <laughs> uh, but in the wake of Martin Luther's teaching and the teachings of Ulrich Zwingli, um, there arises yeah. a new iconic, iconoclastic movement among the followers of Luther and Zwingli. And what's fascinating about this is that Luther is having none of it. Um, the people who are yeah. Luther's followers start to destroy the art in churches in, you know, um, the kingdoms that, you know, are the Holy Roman Empire at the time. Now we call them Germany. Um, and Luther, I mean, writes and speaks publicly saying those things are sacred art. Do not destroy them. They have a place in the church, so on and so forth. When Calvin mm-hmm. comes along, he's a lot more suspicious of them, again, because of that strong sense that, uh, you know, bringing images into things. Uh, okay, I'm going I'm to say what Calvin said and then what I suspect Calvin also had in the back of his mind. What he said is it makes us too much like the old idol worshipers. What I suspect is also in the back of his mind is it also makes us too much like the Roman Christians. Okay. Yeah. So really this comes to a head in the mid 16th century Uh, neither with Luther nor Calvin, but with a radical reformer uh, called Karlstadt. And he has a debate with the uh, Roman. uh, Unfortunately, he's most famous for his defense of indulgences, uh, but he also made a defense of images, uh, John Tetzel. All right. And in this debate, I mean, you know, uh, Karlstadt is an absolutist when it comes to iconoclasm. He says that Moses gave us this commandment, Uh, Moses did not revoke this commandment. God has never revoked this commandment. You will not worship images. And don't tell me about Dulia and Latria. 
if you are bowing down, if you are saying prayers, if you are showing signs of respect to a, you know, an image that human hands crafted, then, you know, you are worshiping that image. And Mm. that really was influential far beyond anything that Karl Stott's churches ever exerted. uh, Because, you know, in Lutheran circles and in Anglican circles, you still have some religious imagery, but in the, I'm going to call them broadly, the Central European Protestant traditions, uh, you have just a strong, strong iconoclastic streak that lasts really up to the present moment. So, like I said, I am not a uh, a church historian, nor have I ever claimed to be one. But you know, just <laughs> from my reading around, that's kind of a brief. And listeners are saying, "Brief, dear heavens, I'd hate to hear the long one." Uh, but a brief <laughs> uh, account of you know iconoclasm, specifically within Christian traditions. Hmm. Where do you fall, like personally? Do you? Anti-images, four images, don't care at all. Here's what I'll say. In my own personal history of worship, all right, you know, I have been part of the Stone Campbell tradition, which is pretty heavily influenced by Calvinism. And so, I mean, in my own worship life, um, I have never viewed images iconically. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we talk about icons, we're talking about, you know, not images that are themselves holy, but images that stand as a sort of window through which one gazes upon the divine. Okay. Mm. So think of an icon as a window to heaven. Okay. In my history of worship, I mean, that's never how visual art has been presented. Uh, It's always been representative rather than iconic. Um, Mm -hmm. With that said, I mean, philosophically and theologically, I can understand the arguments. So, I mean, if I were to say that, you know, I personally see art iconically, I'd be misrepresenting my own experience. But (laughs) if I would say that, you know, uh, there is no valid argument for it, I would be misrepresenting the theology of it. So does that Mm. distinction make some sense? Am I, am I being too much of a weasel there? Yeah, no, no, that's close (laughs) to what I would say. All right. All right. Okay. So is iconoclasm an idea that we can coexist with? And can Christian unity exist between iconoclasts and those who choose to use icons in their places of worship? Well, and here's where my ecumenical streak comes out. I think that um, in order to become an iconic worshiper, right? In other words, someone who can receive the gift of an image that is a window to heaven, it takes a certain kind of discipleship. And it's not the kind of discipleship that I've ever been under. Uh, So, I mean, you know, My pluralism is going to say, and my humanism is going to say that, uh, you know, I can call uh, Orthodox and Lutheran Christians my sisters and brothers, right? Um, You know, if I were to worship with them, and when I worship with them, I shouldn't pretend that that's a hypothetical thing. When I worship with (laughs) them, I, I still experience that worship service as somebody else's worship service if that makes some sense. Right. Yeah. So coexist certainly. Um, but I'm also wary of an ecumenism that is so eager for unity that we pretend that our historical differences don't condition us at all. Cause I think they really do. Mm-hmm. Right. So you mentioned it, you beat us to the punch you are part of the Christian humanist project. Uh, yeah. So humanism has its own connect our own corner of the Renaissance arts. Yes. Uh, is your connection with humanism, as such, influence your perspective on worship in art? Oh, certainly, certainly. 
and you know, I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about, uh, especially the the Italian Renaissance, right, uh, is that you get this. Gl- I think it's glorious, uh, even though it's alien, right? Uh, but you get this glorious um, incorporation and appropriation of classical symbolisms into Christian worship spaces. All right, so I'll preface this by saying that uh, I once heard uh, Tony Campolo, the famous Baptist preacher. Uh, on a podcast say that, uh, you know, when he went to the Sistine Chapel, that's not Christian art, that's pagan art. Because uh, you got, you know, God represented like Zeus, and you got all the saints represented like ancient Roman heroes, and, you know, so on and so forth. I am more inclined to say that when, for instance, Dante has the uh, legendary and mythical King Minos being the judge of the dead, um, he is basically he is making a bold theological statement that, you know, when those old artists and poets who did not know Christ talked about King Minos as a judge of the dead, that they were onto something allegorically that they could not understand theologically. And that goes Mm. for, you know, Dante incorporating, you know, Cato of Utica in Purgatorio. Uh, It goes for, you know, all of the wonderful things that he does in the Commedia. It also, I think, goes for all of the ways that uh, Michelangelo and Donatello and all of those Italian artists, right, um, are bringing classical, which is to say, you know, those who did not know Christ, imagery into Christian spaces, right? So I don't have a problem with, uh, you know, Moses, uh, you know, at the Basilica of St. Peter, looking a lot like what Cato of Utica gets described as in Dante's Purgatorio. I don't have a problem with the giant Mm. white bearded muscle man (laughs) that's on the Sistine Chapel uh, because I don't think that Michelangelo there, just like I don't think Dante is being literal, right? Uh, It's not Mm. that there is a God called Jupiter uh, who stands alongside the God who led the Hebrews out of Egypt, but rather what people unknowingly uh, paid homage to and worshiped about Jupiter uh, to the extent that those things are true, they are true not of that false god, but of the true god. All right. Yeah. And you know this is this is you know part of my uh, well documented and long running love hate relationship with C.S. Lewis. Uh, you know, at the end of the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia, I think that he is right on target where he says, to the extent that a Tash worshiper does what is noble and good and merciful and kind, that he's truly worshiping Aslan. And, you know, that's not just because of C.S. Lewis. It's also because, you know, recently my good friend uh, Jeff Satterfield at our church has been teaching through Acts. And one of the things I notice is that when St. Paul, especially other people in Acts 2, but especially St. Paul, talks to the people of, let me, let me back that up. When he talks to the non-Judean people of the cities of Europe and Asia, he says things like, uh, you know, God is no respecter of persons, but anywhere that a human being is good, God honors that. And I'm thinking, mm. oh, holy cow, that's the New Testament. That you know, that's <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that that's not something that I'm importing in from my you know pagan philosophers. That's Saint Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. There, there's so much that's just. It's interesting how people do these things. Like, just like, you know. The same people who complain about people not taking Bible verses in context, look at Michael Angelo's work and won't take it. And I'm probably saying it wrong. Say it your way. Say it your way. (laughs) 
Oh, you're probably right. I just don't know <laughs> how you said it. Um, but, th- you know, th- they are the same people who complain about him depicting God as white instead of thinking of it in that context, right? So it's funny sure, that you complain sure. about context in one area then forget about it in the other. It's also funny that people who are anti-context still have a much easier time reading Song of Songs going, wait a minute, I still don't have to think long necks are beautiful. That was just a cultural thing. <laughs> like they get that a lot easier than they get some of the right, God stuff right. in the Bible. It's like, you know, some things are just, they just change, man. Um, yeah. But the, the thing, oh, what were you going to say? I was going to say it was Aquinas' fault we think he's white. Oh, uh, yeah, true. Um, <laughs> we're known to be anti Thomas Aquinas on this show, but... That's like church unity, except for that guy. Um, <laughs> and, and listeners, I love yeah, Thomas Aquinas, right. so I, I, I am once again the uh, the troublemaker and the interloper here on the whole church podcast. I, I am the test of how seriously they take ch- church unity. So it's interesting. A lot of iconoclasts, because you mentioned they're okay with depicting pictures of Jesus. It's also interesting. Well, no, 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 no. The iconoclasts absolutely are not. Oh, they're not okay with Jesus. No, either. no, 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 okay. no, no, no. I thought and, they were part, okay with Jesus, that, just not God or the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. Okay, so I mean, okay. even even but, among those who are iconoduls, which is the technical term okay. for it, but that sounds like a silly word, so I usually don't use it. It does sound silly. I like it. Um, but even among iconoduls, usually they will make a distinction between representing God the Father, which they still prohibit. And representing God the Son, which they will allow. I feel like now, like I said, that that's where Michelangelo would fall fall afoul of everyone in the ninth yeah, century, yeah. not but just the like iconoclast. A yeah. lot of our lower liturgical churches today probably are more on that lines because you see these things of like a kid had a dream and they paint that Jesus with green eyes, and that's cool. But if you painted a picture of God, yeah, we don't like that so much. Right. And it's right. also interesting that it tends to be more pictures. Like they're okay with like poems that describe God or like, oh, sure, sure. You know, writings that describe it. Like that is still a form of art, music that's talking about who God is. You know, mm-hmm. all of that stuff is art that is depicting God. And that's fine. It's just specifically images. And that's what's interesting. You know, I wouldn't say right or wrong, but I just find it right, interesting right. that that distinction's made. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, and, you know, I think of the, the extraordinarily memorable character of God the Father in. John Milton, you know, arguably the mm-hmm. great Puritan poet, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. if, if there is an iconoclastic Christian tradition, the Puritans are it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, their great poem, Paradise Lost, I mean, has, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of lines in which the father is a character. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think part of that comes down to, which I don't know, this is universal, but I, I feel like when you are hearing descriptions of something that is not supposed to be knowable uh, you can almost feel it you can feel like you're close to being able to comprehend it you're just not there and trying to write that down is kind of where you go wrong because you're not supposed to be able to right and and tj's very deep answer is good i mean the shallower gilmore (laughs) answer is that the bible narrates scenes with god in it so since there's actually Mm -hmm. biblical precedent people are generally less uh antsy about it Hmm. yeah so are there any is there another piece of art or aesthetics in your church that you get excited about and would like to discuss? Because, you know, you already talked about like the baptism pit painting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's really the most prominent piece of visual art in our church. I mean, uh, you know, the architecture of the church itself, I mean, you know, is something else that I'm excited about. I mean, only because 
it is so commonplace that most people don't think about it. But I mean, the fact that even though, you know, it comes from a tradition that, you know, is, is traditionally antsy about visual representation, you still have the steeple at the front of the church with a cross (laughs) at the top of it. Right. So, I mean, you know, there's still, you know, that, that, I think architectural callback to, you know, the passage in gospel of John, and I didn't write down this passage uh, where Jesus compares himself to the snake that is lifted up in the wilderness, you know, so that Mm. the people can be delivered from the venom of the snakes. Right. Uh, And, you know, I mean, every small town Protestant church that has that steeple with the cross on top is a symbolic visual representation of that passage in John. And I, I dig that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Also, this is just a, like a like a side fact for everybody. I am personally really glad that those uh, crosses on steeples aren't crucifixes. I don't particularly have a dog in the fight of crucifix versus empty cross. I just don't want to be looking up at a tall crucifix over the skyline. Yeah, ah, cross looks good, good thing you don't live in Rio de Janeiro then. It is. That's different. <laughs> and a great set piece for Godzilla, King of the Monsters. That's uh, true. <laughs> But no, I do feel like sometimes it could be unnerving, you know, at night living in Rio to look up and you see the crucifix. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I think I that's think absolutely so. the point of that that statue, right? I mean, yeah, th- th- there is a in a very visual sense, uh, Christ is looking down at you always. Yeah. Also, uh, TJ, grab your pen. Wrong opinion. I don't particularly like that statue. That's one of my wrong opinions. Yeah, I just wanted to add that to the list real quick. <laughs> so. Uh, but yeah, people go hard for their church architecture, their Christian architecture. Y'all remember when Notre Dame burned down? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They rebuilt that so fast. They raised like, what was it, $2 billion in a week sure, or something sure. ridiculous? Yeah. yeah. That was pre-pandemic. You guys remember that? I barely do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If it had taken two weeks, I might have donated $5. Yeah. The, so, like we said, Christian Humanist Project, Nathan Gilmore, check them out. You might you might like what you see. Might be interested. Yeah, or Perfect. here at any rate, we don't do video. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, outside of paintings or statues, one thing we're asking everybody for this series, instead of our usual ending question, we like to ask: What is one kind of art that you think people could get into that might help us all draw closer to God and one another? So, what immediately occurs to me um, is something that has been done poorly. So I don't want to uh, get too many associations with the really bad versions of this. Um, But I think that enactments, I think that drama is something that has a real power uh, because it is human bodies moving around and speaking to each other. Um, And, you know, what I would love uh, is, you know, something like the film Jesus of Montreal. If you've ever seen that one, you know what I'm talking about. If not, go see it. Uh, But the, the, premise of this movie is that a a flailing uh catholic parish in montreal hires a crew of -of out-of-work actors to do their passion play and what ends up happening is this gloriously done but theologically marginal (laughs) version of the passion and you know what what's fascinating about the film is that the actor who plays jesus uh slowly takes on attributes of christ until at the very end, he actually recites word for word uh, Jesus's, um, oh, and I forget the, the biblical studies name of this, but uh, his oracle against Jerusalem from Mark 13, except instead oh, wow. of Jerusalem, he's looking down on Montreal and, you know, talking about the destruction yeah. of Montreal. 
it is it is a wonderful wonderful movie uh and you know what i think of is not that uh every church should go try to find out of work actors to make theologically marginal passion plays although that (laughs) could be awesome but that the church should tap into its high school teachers and its educated people and it's, you know, people who do community theater and, you know, actually yes. think about, you know, what would it look like to do complex and how to put this historically informed uh, dramatic mm-hmm. art in the churches. I think that could really have some potential. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm telling myself a little bit at church camp and like other, you know, big events growing up. I was a part of the same church TJ goes to now. The church got a prophecy and. I am thankful for my terrible memory because usually I dislike the dramas and stuff that people yeah. do because they're usually not done very well. <laughs> and then every time someone announces a drama, I'm like, Ugh. and because of my terrible memory, I could never remember the name of the one church that actually did it really well. Uh-huh. But every time they got up, I was like, ah, and then they start going. I was like, oh, this is those guys. And I got so excited. It was great. Yeah, and I mean, you yeah. know, what what I try to remember, and it's it's hard for me to sometimes to remember, is that the phrase Christian art encompasses the worst VBS skit you've ever seen, and it encompasses mm-hmm. Shakespeare's tragedies. And fireproof. Just throw that <laughs> fireproof. Uh, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll let other people decide uh, <laughs> which uh, end of Where the that spectrum falls, that yeah. one tends towards. <laughs> so what do you think we would see change in the world around us and the big C church if everyone start you know took the time to invest in that the, the good drama i think that it would be a kind of discipleship and again this is not something that you know has never existed or never been tried i mean the mm-hmm. the plays of shakespeare just to start with are just incredibly formed by biblical texts right so you know i'm yeah. not saying that every church has a shakespeare in it what i am saying is that that'd be nice just about every church has people who have read shakespeare And, you know, I mean, if we start to actually let God give us the gift of Shakespeare, and if we let God translate that into some new original drama that, you know, actually shows some of that influence, one, I think that our witness to the public really could be something that, you know, invites complexity and confesses our sins and, you know, introduces possibilities of grace Uh, The way that, frankly, Shakespeare's plays do. And the other thing I think that it would do is um, it could really break the stranglehold of simplistic theology on us. Because one of the great things about teaching Shakespeare at the Christian College, which I did for 14 years, is that, you know, we really got to dig into, okay, what is Shakespeare doing here theologically? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, a free piece of advice for any churches out there. I think the best way to do this isn't to find your pastors that aren't doing that much and try to get them to learn how to do a good play. You know, your <laughs> your most Bible guy and be like, yeah, you learn how to do a play. Grab some kids. Yeah. Find the people who know the play stuff and teach them the Bible. Do it right, that way. I right. think it'll turn out better. Yep. Yeah. 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 So before we wrap up with anyway, so but like it's about the passion, you know, if you're not in it, you don't care about it. It's going to be bad. It doesn't matter how skilled somebody is. That's true. Mm. You got to hire for the passion. Yeah. So before we wrap up, we like to ask everyone to share a moment that they saw in God recently, whether it be a blessing, challenge, moment of worship, whatever it may be. And I always make Joshua go first because uh, to, you know, give our guest plenty of time to think and me. 
I'm going to do three. Cool. We missed last week, so I'm going to cheat. <laughs> I'm going to pull a Christian Ashley on everybody. Um, number one happened during, two of them actually happened during this episode. Um, one of them was uh, our biggest patron, our, our favorite patron, maybe. Um, our longest running patron, Russell Gentry. Russell. Shout out to Russell. He donates enough. We're supposed to say his name every episode, but we forget. <laughs> he sent me a picture with him and his kids during this episode because he got the T-shirt that patrons get after six months, which we just started six months ago is why he just now got it. Otherwise, he would have got it way longer ago. And he looks good. They look happy. It was good to see him and good to see whole church merch out there. Um, let's see. Other God moment that happened during this because... This last week, I started back at Chipotle, and, and some stuff that we were talking about flagged things that I was learning or relearning, thinking about with uh, Chipotle. We're about to open a new store. That's why I'm going. So I'm training at one place to open a new store that hasn't had anybody there yet. And we're thinking a lot of like how it looks and how we do things really sets the tone. you know. So the store we're training at, I'm going to tell them a little bit. They have rubber bands for certain things that should be actual equipment holding things up. You know, <laughs> there's pieces of stuff that's missing. The floors are dirty. And you can tell when the store looks like that. Guess what? Workers come in and that's what they're thinking. You set the tone. They realize, oh, we don't care that much about this place. And it does show. And when your manager comes in with a dirty hat, dirty shirt, guess what? They're thinking, oh, it doesn't matter that much. And I think that can translate to how we view aesthetics at our church, Right. When the if when we dress like this is something that matters to us, or if we dress casual, that's going to set the tone for how our worship service goes. You know, what kind of stuff's on our walls, what the church looks like, the even the tallness of the building. You know, I think whether you want a sense of awe or whether you want a sense of community, like everything about our aesthetics of the church says something. It sets the tone for our worship services that happen there. Um, so that was number two. And number three, also because I've been working <laughs> at Chipotle, um, I've been reminded that I do have this gift of being able to train people and work with them and teach. And it's something I haven't been doing for a while. So it kind of triggered that verse, you know, that uh, people like to quote that, you know, um, stir up that gift that's within you that gets taken out of context a ton of times. But I'm thinking of it and I'm like, no, this is something I haven't been doing. And maybe I should be doing this in a church context, too doing a little bit more discipling, teaching kind of stuff. Because I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I do have a gift, so I should probably use that. Yeah. So a challenge, um, a blessing with Russell. And, I, you know, I feel like I did all three. Yeah. 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 You were cursed. Yeah. <laughs> My curse. Returning to Chipotle. I I love Chipotle, personally. Me too. Speaking of which... uh. <laughs> Carne Asada's back, guys. By the time you get listening to this, that's my God moment. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is it really? No, it's close though. <laughs> I was teaching everybody how to do it today. They were like, "Wait, this is good." They showed us yesterday, and it wasn't. And I was like, "It's because he showed you wrong." <laughs> Carne Asada is good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're just we're fully shilling at this point. Go to go to your local Chipotle. Crowd the Carne Asada. <laughs> uh, it's delicious. The first ever return limited time offer. Mm-hmm. Check it out. It's it's based off of what is it? North Mexican themed foods. You, it's yeah. a fragrant spice. Uh, cilantro, yeah. cumin, chili. Yeah, check that please, out. Please, please do your God moment. We so are not uh, sponsored. Not sponsored. Well, it kind of is because we work there. But that's true. Uh, they do pay us. We use that money to do the podcast. So. Uh, for me, my God moment 
is, is going to be also about Chipotle, but in a very different way. Uh, it is seeing people's ability to forgive. Because uh, in a store setting, you can see uh, if a clothes goes poorly, you you and mm, you can see yeah. some of the angriest people that have ever existed, the openers. It's true. And uh, it's just amazing to see how time can sate that wound enough for the closer and the opener to talk about it, come to an agreement over it, and not fight each other mm-hmm. by by the time they see each other. Mm-hmm. Were you the me, opener? Yeah, you know, it's me. <laughs> yeah, it was me. You're amazed by your own ability to forgive. Yeah, that's God. <laughs> all right, good stuff. That Nathan. was a challenge, actually. So, so first of all, I got to compl- I got to uh, apologize because uh, you know because I live in North Georgia, my uh, burrito loyalty is 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 completely on the side of Willie's, not on Chipotle. So, I do apologize you for that. Willie's is it's fine. <laughs> Uh, it it is a chain of of burrito as big as your head places that is I'm pretty sure exclusively North Georgia. So, uh, but my God moment. Let's get away from burritos and towards God. Um, although you know is, is God is, is in I, my burrito. Is God present in the burrito? I, I'm Absolutely. pretty sure there was a, a a medieval debate about that at some point. But um, my God moment. I mean, on one hand, I'm tempted to think of this as just my vanity, but I really do think that it is a moment where God is starting to heal me because my professor career ended under very bad circumstances in very ugly ways. And this last week um, I've been doing uh, an event called Socrates cafe uh, at the Osher lifelong learning Institute uh, at university of Georgia for about a year now. Um, and you know, its roots are in the uh, book by Chris Phillips, uh, Socrates Cafe, and then also in an event that I did at Emmanuel College for 11 years uh, that we called the Emmanuel College Socrates Cafe. But you know, the fact that I was back on a university campus doing philosophical things and discovering, I mean, to my honest surprise that I could still do it well, uh, mm-hmm. was really something that brought something back to me because I, I realized rationally that this is superstitious and it is completely unreasonable, but I have had this pervasive fear ever since I packed up the last boxes in my professor office that I wouldn't be able to do things like write or preach sermons or lead philosophical dialogues or do those sorts of things that I associated with that chapter in my life. So every time I have a chance to do one and it goes well, it is on the one hand, absolutely my vanity. Okay. So I'm not going to pretend that my vanity is absent here, but it's also a moment where God reassures me that this very ugly and very painful moment in my life didn't take away everything. Mm. And Mm. boy, that's, that's, that's a reassurance that I need right now, man. Yeah, I'm glad he went last. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I, not as many burritos. I'm sorry for that. Way less. Uh, you'll get around to it. Just wait. <laughs> yeah, it Next launches tomorrow. Go tomorrow. So, yeah, if you like this episode, please consider sharing with a friend. Uh, share with an enemy if you have them. Uh, share it with a cousin. We love our cousins. We hope you love your cousins. If you don't, send them this anyway. <laughs> Maybe you'll learn to love them. As yeah, they maybe they'll learn hear TJ's God moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you're listening on the AMP Network YouTube channel, hit like and subscribe. It helps so yeah. much. 
That's true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, speaking of the AMP Network, uh, the Anazal Ministries Podcast Network, make sure you go check out some of our other shows there. We have another one I do, the Dummy for Theology Podcast. Um, I'm trying to make some other ones. Uh, check out the Bible After Hours. It's you know it's a little raunchier, a little more progressive, but uh, I think it's good stuff, some good Bible takes. And, of course, Christian Ashley, friend of our show, Let Nothing Move You. He's going through Romans right now. So it's always fun to hear about Romans. Yeah. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Come back next week. We'll be continuing our ecumenical aesthetic series with Pastor Will Rose and Reverend Kino Kennedy to discuss our favorite pieces of art from other Christian traditions, which for me is all of them, pretty much. Uh, and then Brother J.R. Martin, Dr. Peter Link, and Dr. Peter Beck will be on with us to discuss how imagery is used in the Bible and the symbolism in some of our church flags, which they're all on the same episode, right? Yeah, yeah, Brother Martin... I'm not 100% how confirmed that is. Okay. That's like a 50% confirmed. Yeah, he may yeah. or may not be there. The other that ones is, will be. Yeah, that's probably like a must-listen episode if everyone shows up. Yeah. Uh, so after that, uh, Pastor Shana Watson of the Anglican tradition will be joining us to discuss art unique to her tradition, which is a surprising amount. And finally, at the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us to talk about his ecumenical aesthetics. Yeah, he doesn't know about it, though. So someone should let him know. <laughs> Probably important. Yeah. 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 Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Sign the sign the petition. Yeah. <laughs>